0: Hello listeners, Yamina here. Welcome to this episode of the Dr. GPCR podcast. Before we jump into this episode, I'd like to share a few things with you. The December and last Dr. GPCR newsletter of 2020 is now available. If you haven't subscribed yet, please visit drgpcr.com newsletter. Also, don't forget to share the newsletter with your colleagues. We cannot wait to bring you brand new Dr. GPCR newsletter editions in 2021. Second, we will be taking a short break of the Dr. GPCR podcast in January 2021, as our family will be welcoming a baby boy. But rest assured, we are already working on bringing you brand new episodes, starting sometimes in February 2021, with an amazing lineup of guests. Also, stay tuned for a major announcement regarding the podcast. We're also proud to announce that we are pursuing consulting opportunities in the GPCR field. For help with your R&D project, please visit drgpcr.com consulting or reach out by email at hello at drgpcr.com. And last but not least, we will be closing this first season of the Dr. GPCR podcast with a series of interviews with phenomenal female scientists in the field. We hope you'll enjoy it. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Yamina Brashish, founder of Dr. GPCR, and welcome to another episode of the Dr. GPCR podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Annette Gilchrist. She is an associate professor at the Pharmaceutical Sciences at Midwestern University. Hi, Annette. Hello. It's so nice to have you on the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great, even for a pandemic. Purple, <laughs> <laughs> sunny day in Chicago. We'll, we'll take sunny days anytime. Um, I'm, I'm glad that we were able to, you know, put this together and talk to you. So, um, can you tell us a little bit more about about your tra- career tra- trajectory? See, it's uh, it's the summertime, so I'm having a hard time getting words out. Um, and how, what do you do exactly uh, as an associate professor?
1: Sure. So those are two totally different questions. If I forget one by the time we get to the end, just remind me. Um, I will. Trajectory. So um, I would say as most scientists, I have uh, an unusual um, trajectory. I don't think anybody or a few of us start out saying I want to be a PhD. Um, so I started uh, with the idea that I was going to go to medical school. Um, I Uh, tried. I'm originally from Oklahoma and I applied at the University of Oklahoma and they weren't interested in me. I guess my GPA wasn't high enough, um, you know, for whatever reason. And so I decided to actually go and get a master's degree um, because I'd heard that if you had a good GPA with the master's that you could usually get in. So I said, fantastic. I went to um, the University of Connecticut, actually, to get my master's degree, because at the time, Oklahoma didn't have like a fantastic genetics molecular biology program. Um, so I went to Yukon and I got a master's in biochemistry, uh, and I, at the time, was doing um, research on the toxic effects of acetaminophen. Um, on um, neonatal uh, animals. And when I finished my masters, uh, I actually took a job at Pfizer. So I worked for somebody named Peter Hobart, and the work was the first time I think I was ever really interested uh, in science, with my whole being, you know, like I thought it was amazing and fascinating and I couldn't get to work early enough, and I couldn't stay late enough, and I just—I wanted to know the answer to every question uh, that we were working on, which at the time was looking for drugs for um, osteoporosis. So I became interested in bone; was really fascinated by bone itself and and how it forms, um, and and actually was thrilled. I'd gotten into medical school, was going to start in the fall, but I loved my job so much at Pfizer. I decided that I didn't really want to spend the rest of my life treating cancer, um, which is what I had hoped to do. I decided that I'd rather look for a cure for cancer. And so um, literally two weeks before school started, decided to go get my PhD. So thankfully, uh, I was accepted <laughs> incredibly late uh, into a program at uh, University of Connecticut Health Center, and I ended up getting a PhD in immunology. Uh, so that was um, years ago now, decades ago. Uh, at the time, I studied as an undergraduate, as a graduate, I studied um, tyrosine phosphatases uh, that were activated uh, by fnet which happens to be a GPCR, but that was certainly not... Anything that I planned on. I I was looking more at the tyrosine phosphatase signaling aspect of it. But when I looked for a postdoc, I fell in love with Chicago, which is where I still am, um, some (laughs) many, many years later. And I got a postdoc with Heidi Hamm, who's well known for her uh, work in G protein coupled receptors, and came to Chicago and looked at uh, receptor G protein interactions. So, uh, since my postdoc started in like '94, um, I've been working on GPCRs ever
0: since. So. Wow! And how? What? What made you decide to to do a master's in, in biochemistry and and molecular biology?
1: Uh, I decided it was my penance. Um, <laughs> I really uh, didn't love. Uh, chemistry it was not something that I found to be intuitive which uh, is really uh, funny because I teach med chem now um, of cancer drugs uh, so um, I, I feel like you know if I if I have a subject that I'm not great at the only way that I can get really good at it is to teach it I think um, and at the time the way that I learned biochemistry was to master in it so um, while it was definitely death by fire, I think in the first exam, it, it was definitely something that I put to use in every aspect of my
0: sort of scientific career. Wow. Especially that initially you, you went to do a master's because you just, you quote unquote, just wanted to get into med school. So, no intent
1: of using it like long term. <laughs>
0: <Which> <laughs> is, that's that's the irony so when were you first exposed to working on gpcrs was it in heidi ham's lab
1: so no i was actually um getting my phd because i worked on fnet p so like i knew the fnet receptor was a gpcr and um mm-hmm. so knew about chemotaxis you know, through G protein coupled receptors that kind of thing but it was definitely not the sort of focus of the research at all and in fact, when I told uh, the people on my committee that I was going to go and work for uh, Heidi, they were all like, well, you know, g proteins have already got their Nobel Prize. You're so not going to get it again. But <laughs> they didn't know. that <laughs> Rebecca okay, and Lefkowitz would, <laughs> in fact, get it. Um, exactly. <laughs> but I was just, you know, like signaling to me, signaling in a cell is pretty interesting. So whether it's through kinases or phosphatases driven by GPCRs or non- to PCRs. I, I think it's you know they're all related
0: and they're all going to talk to each other in one way, shape or another. Of course, of course. And how did the opportunity to work at Pfizer come up? Uh, you know, oftentimes um, students or grad students who are in academia, in their mind, the only way to to move forward in their careers is to do PhD, a postdoc, and then hopefully become a professor. But oftentimes we don't have that information or infrastructure out there to understand that with a PhD, you can do so many things, including uh, working for, for an industry. So how did that happen?
1: You know, it was probably just like an ad on the wall at the university. I, I honestly don't remember. I mean, I remember interviewing because it was like a, an all-day affair, and I had yeah. never been on an interview that lasted eight hours, and I just thought that that was like, really? How much more can I tell you? or um, you say the same story eight times for all the people that you meet. Why are you interested? Blah blah. Um, but but it was it was pretty um, eye opening. So I feel really fortunate that I worked for uh, Peter Hobart. He really insisted that I uh, go to many of the um, talks that were provided there. Um, I I'm, I met like many people that I would otherwise not because the Money, of course, at pharmacy, we get really amazing speakers that come in and talk and uh, that do consulting. And um, so so I felt incredibly fortunate that I had that experience later on. Um, And certainly, I think the way that you think when you work in industry is often very different, right? So how you solve a problem when you work in academia is not the same way that you solve the problem when you work in industry um and and so that was pretty interesting to me i was really glad i've always had sort of both sides of the coin um with with both industry and academia background
0: Phenomenal. Yes. And you're right. The eight hour or full day interviews are still happening. That's still the case (laughs) in industry. And sometimes you go through many selection uh, processes over the phone. Well, now the eight hour interviews, I think they're kind of shortened uh, down to four hours, but on Zoom still, it's still a long, long interview process. And definitely having that experience of both sides of the coin is very important because I think in some way, both sides kind of complement each other if we're looking at, you know, drugging GPCRs or, you know, coming up with a medicine that will be useful in patients in some disease setting.
1: Yeah, I I think, um, so one of the things that that Pierre really instilled was the idea that, you know, the whole point of a pharmaceutical company, though, is that you will make money, right? I mean, it, it is not something that you're doing because, you want to cure cancer, you're curing cancer because it will make a profit, right, for a company. Um, And and so with just that in mind, just as an overarching goal at a company, you don't have that in academia. So if I decide, right, I see something interesting and I want to follow that discovery, I can do that in academia without any problem at all. If I want to change my receptor, I change it. If I want to study a totally random, non-GPCR-related thing, that's okay. I can still do that. Yeah. Um, And you just don't have that freedom in the world of industry.
0: Oh, definitely, definitely. Because uh, as you said, at the end of the day, the the whole point of sustaining the organization is making a profit, is making money. Um, However, what I would like to add to that, I feel like, not all companies, but some companies still allow you to um, to kind of have that some percentage of your time working on something that might lead to to a bigger project. But if, if leadership pulls the plug, they pull the plug. And, yeah, and
1: absolutely. that's it. Even, even Peter had like, you know, some certain percentage of his time that he could study a side project. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: And then so you did your your, your postdoc in Heidi's lab. Um, and then what, what next? What happened next? So actually, Heidi and I started a
1: company, um, so I ran that company for the better part of 10 years, um, wow. and it, it ultimately moved up to Wisconsin, and I was in Wisconsin for two years, uh, and then I had twins, and when the company closed, then I returned to Chicago and ultimately took a job in academia, where I still am 11 years later, so my kids are now 12. Uh, And so I'm still here and still doing work on GPCRs. So
0: So basically you do have that really experience on both sides of the coin, not only working at at Big Pharma, working in academia, but also running a company. Um, Was it a GPCR-focused company? Can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure.
1: So it it, it was a GPCR company. It actually had two different names with two different intents. So it started out as uh, Q biotech, C-U-E, biotech, where we were looking for small molecules that were allosteric modulators of GPCRs, and the way that we identified the allosteric modulators was to measure uh, GPCR-G protein interaction, so you could identify something that could um, slow the uh, turnover of GP GTP turnover mm-hmm. uh, with G proteins, and that. you you know, would uh, provide you with an antagonist, in essence, of signaling. Yeah. Um, So so that's how it started. Um, And we received several SBIR grants and um, finally, ultimately decided to raise money through venture capitalists. And so when we did that, we changed the focus of the company to be a tools company where we would actually um, provide as part of the process to identify the allosteric modulators, you first identified peptides that mimic the C-terminus of the G-proteins. And so we would provide those as tools uh, to pharmaceutical companies, for example, mm-hmm. so they could choose to do the screening themselves or, or we could do it for them. And um, so that company, uh, once it got VC funding, was called Caden, Caden Biosciences, and that's when we moved up to Wisconsin um, uh, one of the venture investors was a Wisconsin-based uh, venture uh, program. So we moved up there and um, worked on the project for a couple years. Um, but ultimately as a tools company, um, it was too difficult to try and sell that uh, mm-hmm. process. It's a, it's a relatively onerous process to make those peptides work in a high throughput screen. Uh, and so, at that point, uh, when the company closed, uh, literally, I, I just I just came back to Chicago and um, enjoyed myself for, for the better part of uh, 18 months as my, as my kids were young and then went back to work in academia.
0: That's great. That's great. And it's, it's something, I think, it's something that needs to be tried out. If you have a good idea, if you have a good infrastructure, you can get capital. You know, why not? Why not try it out? <laughs>
1: I think that's true. It's it's interesting. I've actually started a, another company recently that has nothing to do with GPCRs, but is related to pharmacogenomics. Um, mm-hmm. And it's because you know you find a problem and you think you have a solution, right? I yep. mean, I think very much. It's the um, idea that you've done something, and if you've struggled with it, and you've tried it a hundred times, and you find a solution to that problem, you think. You know, I think somebody else might want this same thing. And so the question is, can you sell it? Can you make a profit? Yeah. Uh, so and I'm sure that my experience at Pfizer really sort of helped me think about how you think about a scientific question, how do you make a profit out of it? How do you um, put it to practice?
0: Yeah, so it definitely shaped your, your way of thinking about science, which is which is phenomenal. I think it's uh it's it's rare that uh, as acad- as an academic scientist, someone who started out as an academic scientist, you get the chance or you get that exposure early on and then you decide to just go at it and, and try it out, which is phenomenal. I hope it'll inspire a lot of our listeners. Um, getting back to GPCR, so you've worked uh, in Heidi's lab and then uh, you worked at these companies and then you, you're back in academia. Uh, do you have a favorite receptor or receptor family that you're currently exploring? So, you know, it's pretty funny um,
1: that I'm pretty receptor agnostic. Okay. (laughs) I like all GPCRs. PCRs. (laughs) Um, So I personally currently work on uh, a chemokine receptor called CCR1. Okay. And I work on uh, the free fatty acid receptor FFA2. Um, And... um, I am working on uh, with an, with another colleague here at the university. I'm working on the muscarinic M two and M three receptors.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, you know, but but in the past I worked on rhodopsin when I worked in Heidi's lab, and I um, worked on par one, which uh, Paul Insel talked about yeah. in his uh, episode with you. And so. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I think a lot of GPCRs are really interesting. He talked about the, the proton receptor. I, I'm fascinated by that because much of what we looked at when I was at Pfizer and looked at bone had to do with low pH that the cells get uh, osteoplasts get turned on only at a low pH. And so you wonder if um, there's a proton receptor that's driving that phenomenon uh, for differentiation, um, uh, certainly for cancer. And so i think there's a lot of you know i personally love to read about the adhesion gpcrs it's like a hobby yeah uh, in, in in all my spare time that none of us have but i still do it um because they're huge and i think that's amazing you know so i have a lot of like gpcrs that i read about but i personally work on mostly ccr one ffa2 and muscarinic m 2 and 3.
0: wow well it's uh, i think it's um it's researcher dependent, uh, the, the love for, you know, one specific family or, you know, having all of these interests, but definitely adhesion re- receptors are really cool and really interesting and also hard to study. I think that's it's one of the reasons there is not as much information out there as you would you would want. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. So uh, in what context are you studying, uh, for example, the chemokine receptors, CCR1 or CXCR1? CCR1. Is the CCR1. One I look- So I look at it in the context of cancer, right? So I'm back to cancer, which is where I
1: started, right? I had an interesting cancer from early on. Um, And I look at it in two aspects. So I look at its role in multiple myeloma. Mm -hmm. uh, And and I look to see because bone is clearly involved in multiple myeloma, the patients often get uh, lesions in their bone and uh, present uh, because they have broken bones. Uh, having no other symptoms, and it's because uh, their osteoclasts and osteoblasts are no longer in balance. So they have too few osteoblasts and way too many osteoclasts, way too active. So um, CCR1's been implicated in osteoclast differentiation, and so I'm looking for inhibitors. So mostly what I do is uh, screening. I'm looking at inhibitors for CCR1 that would turn off osteoclast differentiation. And potentially enhance osteoblast differentiation. So, you could keep that in better balance in those uh, myeloma patients. And I'm also interested in CCR1 uh, because many cancers home to the bone uh, when you have metastasis. So, metastasis is actually what usually kills a patient who has cancer. It's like 90% of patients actually die from metastasis, not the original cancer itself. So prostate cancer, breast cancer, several cancers actually preferentially home to bone. And so I wanna know if that's being driven by CCR1. And again, can you turn that off, that chemotaxis of the metastatic cells, can you turn that off um, with CCR1 inhibitors? So that's usually what I'm um, doing my research on for CCR1. With FFAA2, I'm actually working with an investigator who's at UIC, who's an endocrinologist. And so he's interested in FFA2 and its role in diabetes. So I've been helping his lab um, screen compounds uh, for that are, that are biased um, for uh, their role in uh, being able to be useful in a, in a type 2 diabetes model. Wow. Wow. So and
0: that, a- yeah, I, I, I was listening to you talking about, you know, uh, Chemotaxis and CCR1, and all of these, and then I remembered reading a paper uh, about the um, CXCR4, and I think I think that was your paper at that point. And that was the first uh, driving how it was driving the relationship between CXCR4 and SDF1 or cxl 12 uh, driving um, cancer cells out of the primary tumor, going into secondary tumor uh, sites, and uh, that that caught. I think that was the first ever scientific paper i had read uh, and i love that paper it's 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 although it's a devastating disease and a lot as you mentioned a lot of people die out of of these secondary um, tumors at distant sites uh, it's still a beautiful physiological not physiological pathophysiological event that happens and it's a smart smart way of getting cells out of one place to taking them into another so you mentioned that you do screens. What kind of screens do you do? What kind of tools do you use on an everyday basis to try and answer some of these questions with with these two receptors, for example?
1: Um, So it's pretty interesting because um, even though we've certainly not coordinated this um, in any way, shape, or form, that several things have come up in your prior people who you've interviewed, right? And so one of them that came up had to do with uh, native systems, right? the the importance of using primary cells and um, understanding the signaling that happens in the endogenous uh, receptor versus in a hex cell where you overexpress it um, so <laughs> i've been pretty much saying that for at least 15 years like i have a paper about it 15 years ago um because i think it's absolutely true right so I try to take an assay that's no different than what's used at Big Pharma, right? They're, they're doing um, calcium assays, cyclic like right? These are common in my yeah. lab. And the difference is that I do it as close to the native cell as I can get. So I'm not using um, stem cell differentiation, though I'd love to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm at least using a cell line that's relevant to the disease that I'm looking at. So if it's multiple myeloma, I'm using a multiple myeloma cell line. I'm not using HEC that overexpresses CCL1. Yeah. Um, if it's diabetes, I'm using a pancreatic cell line. I'm not using a HEC cell with FFA2 expressed. So I, tr- I try it as best I can um, to get to something that's closer to a native system when I do my screens. But I don't think otherwise that I'm doing anything that's different than what other um, like companies would be doing. Uh, But I do look, uh, just because of my background, I look early on for bias. Uh, So GQ versus GI versus beta-arrestin, and I look at that relatively early to find out whether that's gonna play an important role in the physiology and the pathophysiology of the disease itself, So you know, I might not want to turn off GI coupling, uh, for FFA2. I only want to turn on GQ.
0: And, and, And are these, for example, in, in the, in the context of FFA2, is this, uh, this, this need for bias, is it known that it's important to have if you want to correct the situation or is it just something that you want to document to better understand how the receptor works?
1: Yeah, it's not usually known. Uh, Sometimes it is, right? Sometimes they know. So in the case of um, FFA2, we picked GQ because they know that calcium is important uh, for insulin release, right? So it has nothing to do with the actual... And they know that FFA2 signals to to GQ. Mm So when I got to sort of pick my bias, I'm going to pick something that's going to turn on GQ. Um, And it was only sort of uh that you know like we say that in the grants I, I'm looking for something that's GQ biased but it, it turned out that it looks like that FFA2 is actually um constitutively coupled uh to beta arrestin so uh, I think um we found that if you have an inverse agonist of FFA2 beta arrestin constitutive activity you mm-hmm. uh, you actually then push the receptor down the GQ coupling. So I don't have to have a GQ agonist. I can have a, a beta arrestin inverse agonist and get the same result
0: totally totally. but then then he, here's here's my question when it comes to this bias and you know bias was and I, it's funny because as you mentioned I think the discussion about hex cells versus uh, more native like cells with, was was with Terry and then yeah I think even with Paul we, br- we brought up this question of bias and he was mentioning that he just came back from a talk for, uh, of, of Laura he <laughs> <Bolan. laughs> And it wasn't it wasn't planned. But when you're looking at bias in general, I mean, there was for a long, for quite some time now, this idea that you wanted compounds that would, you know, direct to G protein versus not beta restin to um, yield a physiological response that you want uh, without uh, side effects or less side effects. So, what are your thoughts? Your thoughts on that? Knowing that right now. The, um, the recent publications indicate that it's not as black and white. It's more that you want to fine-tune the response. Um, I just want to know what are your thoughts on it.
1: I don't even know that it's not black and white. I think the problem is that you're not going to find a compound that's going to give you black and white, right? So while you can turn off GQ coupling by having a knockout system where you just knock out GQ, right, that, that's not usually uh, something that you can do in a person, right? Yeah. You can sell, <laughs> but I can't do that right in a person. So the question becomes um it, it, how much is enough in terms of turning it down? H- how much is enough, right? Is a 20% reduction of beta erectin' signaling enough? Is a is a 40% reduction in GI signaling enough? A- and I think it is probably cell dependent. It, it, so much of the, and this was mentioned, the allosteric modulators um, are often of lower affinity. There's often sort of a higher background because they're going to interact with more uh, than one GPCR. Um, and, it, and it's really sort of understanding what does that mean in the context of, uh, of the whole system, yeah. right? Because in every cell type, it's going to be different in terms of what interaction it's having based on the confirmation of the receptor in that particular cell, depending on how many other receptors there are, depending on, you know, what kind of um, other uh, proteins are present, right? Does it have um, other uh, proteins that cause it to dimerize? Does it have other proteins that change its signaling, right? I mean, so one of the big things that I talk about, uh, I used to give a talk about the native system and why it's important, right? A lot of people, for example, study uh, neuronal signaling, but they don't do that in neuronal cell lines. They do it in like a hex cell line, which may not have GO, may not have GZ. These are known to be important in neuronal signaling. So you're like, you're not even looking in the right system, right? I mean, how can you know what your your ligand, what your um, compound is doing to the ligand-receptor interaction if you don't even have the right proteins present intracellularly that would normally
0: be there agreed agreed and, and then you mentioned um to to your point you mentioned that in order to look at the the importance for example of g gq signaling with with ffa2 or any other gq potentially receptor you would just knock out that gq which you can do in a human person uh in an organism or larger organism but the problem is that cells adapt and uh, you knock out one G-protein, the cell is going to find another way of activating that same pathway or at least mimicking it with another G-protein. So knocking out GI1, gi I1, will definitely uh, help the cell use the other two GIs uh, right. in, in order to do what, what it wants or to do. GOs. I'm sorry? Right. Or GOs. Oh, G- okay. Oh. Yes, I, yeah, I think they're they're very plastic in that sense, and it, that shows how how even the human body is 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 very plastic in that sense, where you, you have a disease and you kind of change and you adapt, your body adapts to to that disease state, which brings me to 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 your point where you were mentioning that you're looking at a specific GPCR function in cell lines that are closer to that disease state that you're studying. Um, And I think we we can all agree on the fact that having someone who has a diabetes for 10 years definitely changes their, their whole body, their whole GPCR signaling and their whole system and studying cells or that have a similar composition in, in receptors and in effectors as well might give you a better idea on how to target or how to, how to screen for better therapeutics, Right. which gets me to my next question. Um, as we know, we all have genetic variations of, of different receptors or different effectors. How do you think those, those genet- genetic variants will influence GPCR therapeutics? So I think that they probably
1: have influenced GPCR therapeutics just un- unknowingly, right? Unwittingly, just like with the um, biased GPCR for um Beta2 adrenergic receptor uh, uh, that was found, uh, cardiovolol that was more um, impressive in terms of how it treated disease, and the only thing, one of the things that they identified was the fact that it was biased, right, for beta1 versus G protein signaling. That they didn't screen for that. It, it was just fortuitous that it was found to be the most effective when used therapeutically, and later on they found. Right, that in fact it was um, uh, biased, but, but I think the same thing may happen with drugs that target GPCRs that are already used. Right, so um, there's a phenomenal paper by Hauser uh, that came out just a couple of years ago that talked a lot about pharmacogenomics of GPCRs, and and one of um, the receptors that they specifically looked at was the MU opioid receptor. And so they made what are known variant mutations um, uh, in MU and then looked to see what happens for drugs that are available now, right? That are already on the market. Um, so a certain percentage of people already have these mutations that are, they, they are taking these drugs, there's no question. And so then, you know, some of the patients will respond, some of them won't respond, some of them will respond better, right? And so I think that the, that it's already out there in terms of having drugs that in fact may be more relevant based on your pharmacogenomic background. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think more needs to be done, there's no question. There are, there are so few papers out there where uh, a company who already has a drug who knows what the target is? Where the target is a GPCR, where they've gone in and looked at what are the common mutations that are identified uh, in the in the population at large, and and what happens uh, with our drug with that receptor in those populations? Uh, it's just not done, yeah, but it should
0: be. It absolutely, should be. That would help also un- better understand why would one person react better to a drug versus another? And also we would allow to adjust doses or maybe adjust the formulation or even use a totally different compound. Yeah, absolutely. Based based on your, on your yeah. genetic, uh, you know, um, GPCR uh, mutation or a expression. Um, right. The, the, the other thought that I have about this is, for I example-
1: I'm gonna interrupt you and I'm gonna yeah. tell you I think one of the most interesting things, right? In that Hauser paper, they talked about which of the GPCRs have the most mutations. Um, and almost all of them have to do with like hormones, right? So FSH, LH, right? So for all the people who are having infertility issues, right, is it as simple as that they have receptors where there are mutations where their body doesn't respond as well, for example, even to endogenous hormones, right? And so they ovulate differently because of that. I mean, it's just fascinating to me that this is already out there and known, and, and yet there's very little information if you you know do a PubMed search.
0: Yeah, and to, to your point, thanks for interrupting because that, that's where I was uh, kind of going, is not only a better understanding the differences from, from person to person when it comes into, into their mutations and their GPCRs at large, but also how does the environment influence that? Yeah. Uh, what you eat, what you drink, or how much you exercise, can you do something about it uh, as as a person? Sometimes it's not possible, but I firmly believe that having trying to f- kind of figure out the best the best of all of the world's what you eat, how much you exercise, what you do on a regular basis definitely can help you know, make drugs, for example, more bioavailable drugs, you would need less drugs if you have a faster metabolism that you can control through, through exercise, through food. And I think that's also something that needs to be studied. I think there are a lot of not enough studies about the effect of a drug on, on a specific patient with a specific, uh, you know, genetic panel or mutations in their GPCRs, for example, and compare that to their lifestyle.
1: Yeah, because I think that things like diet, right? I mean, they know that GPCRs are influenced by the cholesterol level in your membrane. You know, so certainly having a different cholesterol amount in your diet is going to alter the amount of cholesterol in your membrane. You're going to, you know, like how does that alter your GPCR in terms of its stiffness and how it can, in fact, bind to the ligand or not bind to the ligand, signal to the G protein or not signal to the G protein. You you know, so I, you know, I I think that environment is certainly part of uh the issue
0: yes but it's hard it's hard to control i was i was at some point talking to um to a doctor about this and i was told that it's very difficult to control because you would all first of all building this kind of studies is difficult but also you would also rely on on what the patients tells tells you the participant tells you well, which you is can, you don't have to do it in patients right you can start in mouse models right where you can feed them whatever you want yes right? Yes, yes, and it's uh, it's funny because I was having a conversation with one of my future uh, guests who will who'll end up um, will end up releasing the podcast pretty soon, John Stryker from University of Arizona, and he had a student who decided that they he wanted to study so they study um, opioid receptors and pain, and they wanted to see what happens if you intermittently fast the mice, uh, and how how they react to pain and can you give them less medication. Um, painkillers if they're fast in a fasting state so and the answer is yes they didn't change their food they didn't change their diet just got them on intermittent fasting and they recorded a significantly uh reduced amount of drug needed to treat the same amount of pain inflicted it is it is because i did ask so did you give them something else to eat and they said no right same diet just different timing Exactly. And you can, can you think about the effect if, if it would be, you know, a different timing, but also a different diet and comparing all of those.
1: Right. At that
0: versus not.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that, you know, you know um, I think it's one of the coolest things about GPCRs is how much we still don't know. Right. How much we still don't know. So as much and as wonderful as it's been to get crystal structures and uh, be able to use, um, modeling capacity um, and molecular dynamics, you know, that's fantastic. But there's still so many questions that we have no idea what the answer is. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's one of, I guess it's one of the best things, right, about Jupiter. There's, there's always something to look at.
0: Yes, there is. There is. And uh, speaking, uh, speaking of crystal structures and tools, so we've spoken about using more native-like uh, cells and getting crystal structures to better understand how the receptors work. What do you think uh, are some tools or initiatives that could help speed up targeting GPCRs in drug discovery, but also understand GPCR biology at large?
1: So I'm a big fan of like the BRT technologies and the biosensors where you're looking at protein-protein interactions. And I would say that the reason I'm pretty um, fond of those has to do with dimerization. So uh, uh, Terry Hebert was on, right? I think that his work with dimerization and that understanding of receptor dimerization, it, it really, um, we still don't know though physiologically does it make a difference, right? If you have a ligand, does it bind better to the dimer, the homodimer, the heterodimer? Uh, it, that's amazing to me. That's, Still, so little is really known about the physiological role of dimerization of GPCRs. So I think all of the tools that are being used to explore that, you know, hands down, phenomenal. they've They've really helped us understand, you know, why, what, you know, doesn't make a difference. And, and they still have a long way to go, but at least we're trying, we're sort of scratching um, the surface, if you will, for, for the information that could be available
0: to us. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think uh, it's, it's a tough question to answer. Uh, we already know that for some GPCRs, like the gaba B receptors, you need that dimer to function and to, to get up there uh, at, the, at the plasma membrane. But what are the implications and how can we leverage what we know, or what we can um, know about their function in in treating a disease setting, that would be uh, that's that's definitely something that we absolutely need to do. That gets me to my next question, um, and you, I, I put this question in because I'm always interested in not the simple one-word answer, but I'm interested in in more getting to getting a perspective. So the question is: Do you think GPCRs are still good drug targets? And I think the answer is yes. <laughs>
1: Yes, and I think they will be for a really long time. Um, I, I, I don't know that we're ever going to run out, right? And, and what's interesting, I think, actually, now is that several of the orphan GPCRs, right? So, GPCRs that they don't know what the endogenous ligand is, um, they now have compounds that target them, and those compounds are being used um, to treat diseases. So. Independent of knowing if or maybe there's not an endogenous ligand, although that seems amazing to me that there wouldn't be, um, that you're able to target a receptor, not even knowing what turns it on naturally uh, in the system, and yet you can still use it for disease. I mean, that's amazing, right? And so um, I think that many of the pharma companies um, have sort of seen that, recognized the value of that. and are currently working on sort of their own uh, orphan GPCRs uh, in the background. So even if we don't know what the disease is, um, I I say there's a big um, interest in antibodies for GPCRs, which is pretty interesting, right? You can, there are several diseases that are caused by antibodies to GPCR, right? Graves' disease, for example. Um, But the idea that you could use uh, antibody for a GPCR as a therapeutic is is pretty new, it's pretty novel. Um, But we know, right, I mean, I come from an industry background, we know that you're gonna be much more likely to bring an antibody to market than you are to bring a small molecule to market in terms of success, right, when you start down the pipeline. It's much more likely to be successful if you have an antibody. Uh, And with that in mind, uh, you you know that the targets are good, the GPCRs, you know that they're physiologically relevant, so why wouldn't you want to target them with a monoclonal antibody? So I, I think that that is really a, a, an area that's ripe um, for being exploited uh, by drug companies. Um, I think dimerization is still of interest, but they're sort of on the fence as to knowing whether they need to target them or not. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that there's still quite a bit of interest in GPCRs. I think uh, there's currently right and has been for a while interest in things like allosterics, uh, biased modulators, um, inverse agonists. Those those all are still uh, being looked at, being explored uh, for for disease states, and I think that they will be continued to be of interest. Um, I think the pharmacogenomics isn't explored enough, but I, I, I think um, I, I'm not in tune with what all the uh, uh, industry players are doing right now. But if they're not already on that bandwagon, I suspect that some of them will get there.
0: Oh, definitely. Thank you for that. Yeah, I think it's um, there. there's so much to do. And uh, speaking of uh, orphan receptors, I mean, I'm not even sure that we've discovered all of them yet. So I think there is much more to be to be discovered. I think last month, or the month before, there was a new um, orphan GPCR that was recently cloned. And when you think about cloning GPCRs, you think you know 1990, early 2000s, when you had that huge wave of cloning. Basically anything, and I think I think it was Silvio who was mentioning that at that time, whenever you clone something and you looked at its function, you automatically or very easily could publish it in a high impact journal like a Nature or something. We're not there anymore, but being able to um, document more and more more GPCRs, more orphan GPCRs, but then again understand which uh, which are their endogenous ligands and what they do is, has definitely a potential of of increasing uh, GPCR related drug discovery. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Super. So you went from from wanting to go to medicine, doing a master's, working at Pfizer, then working for, for a company, uh, and then going back to academia. Um, you're well-seasoned in both worlds. What would be your advice to junior scientists who want to contribute in the field but don't really know where to start?
1: I think... I tell people all the time I think that if you're a scientist you have to follow your passion science is nothing that you get into because you want to earn a lot of money um, to me being a scientist is like being an artist you do it because you can't imagine your life doing anything else you know I do science because I love science I love asking a question right I get to I get to find an answer that nobody else knows potentially um, I get to make you know new DNA molecules that nobody's ever looked at before I mean it's amazing to me that I get to do this for a living um, so I, t- I tell students all the time don't don't do science because you're gonna think it's gonna make you money you have to do science because you just you just love it and and so My advice, follow your passion, whatever it is, whether it's GPCRs, whether it's tyrosine kinases, whether it's cancer signaling, um, you know, you have to do what you have interest in because the hours are long and the pay is bad. And so as long as you like what you're doing, that's okay. You know, I still go home happy every day. It doesn't matter whether the experiment worked. I mean, I'm always in a better mood if it does, but I'm still happy that I got to do the experiment, so...
0: And you get to ask the question that you, you're interested in at that moment, right? Um, we've been um, we've been talking science and GPCRs for quite some time now. Um, are there any moments in your career where you did an experiment, or you were, you went to a talk, and then you realized something that you could call an aha moment uh, as your, as your as a scientist, as you're in your during your trajectory? Um, yeah, so I've had—I guess I'd have say I have a
1: couple. So the I would say the first one was when I was in Heidi's lab, and I read—I read a paper about the uh, bark T terminals uh, tails, and they had actually taken out um, the the bark C terminus and they'd put it into a plasmid and they made these tools. And it was after reading those that I decided I wanted to do that with the G proteins and I made the mini genes that uh, many people use in their labs. Um, and at the time when I, when I read the paper, I was like, I can't believe this hasn't been done before, right? I mean, it seems pretty simple. They did it with 55 amino acids. Why can't I do it with 11? Not realizing, of course, that 11 amino acids was actually much harder because then you can't find it because it's so small. You don't know if you have it expressed or not Yeah. Um, but at the time I thought it would be really simple and so I I, I started down that course but there was definitely an aha moment you know why don't I try it kind of thing. Um, When I first did a screen when we were looking for the high affinity C-terminal peptides in Heidi's lab um, we would use those peptides when we looked for small molecule screens and the first time that we did it I was looking for antagonists. I was just looking for something that blocked the high affinity peptide from binding and then would block the G protein from binding, right? That's all I thought about. But what I actually found were agonists, things that made the G protein bind better. And then the question is, what do those do to ligand binding, right? So some of them make the ligand binding better, but they don't signal because the G protein is literally stuck to the receptor, right? So, that was definitely an aha moment. I had no idea that I would find agonists, biased agonists, as well as antagonists. The first time I did my screen, um, and so I think it's, I think it's really important, right? When you have a finding that is completely unexpected, that you follow it, right? That, that you ask the question, why did that happen? Right? Why did that happen? Um, and I think that's important. Instead of being like, oh. Let's try it again. You know, <laughs> maybe there's something in there, right? Um, so I think that that's that's pretty important. Um, I would say the the third one for me would be the the, the recent one with FFA2 uh, when we found an inverse agonist for beta arrestin because those had never been reported before. Um, and so th- they've been reported for a mutant vasopressin receptor, um, but but not for normal receptors to have endogenous beta-rushin activity. So I like had to call around and maybe like, have you ever heard of this? Do you have this in your lab? I mean, you know, I don't know what to make out of it. Um, And and so again, when you get get something that you can't really explain, it's really to say, okay, why? Why did that happen? Let's follow that. Um, And and I have to say that academics really let you do that, right, I I can ask that question
0: agreed um and it's funny because when whenever you get a, a result that you didn't expect the first thought that I have in mind is did I did I do something wrong was wh- how come and then you end up repeating it and you get the same result again and then that's when when the thinking actually hits in and you can you can go a different a different route and p- potentially discover something new right right. Which, which is, which is still phenomenal that you you get to do the experiment, you get to discover, you get to you know doubt yourself at the moment when you get the result. You know, oh, did I did I copy and paste this properly? Did I pipette it properly? And then yeah. be like, no, actually, this this is exactly what's what's happening, yeah, in, in the system. All right, I have two last questions for you before um, we close our our current podcast. So one of them is, it's a topic that comes up. Lately, in a lot in uh, in in the news, and what are your thoughts about increasing diversity in the field? Um,
1: so I think it's I think it's a tough question, right? If it were it an easy, question, we would have had an answer a long time ago. Um, uh, so um, when I was a postdoc um, a million years ago in Heidi's lab, I used to volunteer for a program that was called. Wild about science. It was part of the American Heart Association, and I would go to inner city schools and and give them like a demo on science. Um, and I remember being amazed at how excited they got. And so. I think that anything that we can do to stimulate just that intellectual curiosity about why did that happen, um, I think that you're going to inspire many kids. It doesn't matter where they're from, right? It doesn't matter uh, what their background is. And so you're going to have more diversity the more that you target younger children and you tell them it's okay to just ask the question, why did it do that? you know, or what would happen if? Um, and you have to really ask those sort of open-ended questions and let them explore. I,
0: I, I like that answer. And I think, you know, increasing diversity in general starts at a very young age when you give kids that opportunity to experience new things and to see new things and um, to also get get the ability to ask those questions. Because if you've never been exposed to to science, the chances that you're going to get interested in science are smaller than if if you have you know both parents, professors, doctors, or whatever. Not that I'm saying that it's it's good or bad. I'm saying that having that opportunity is also very very useful and very important to everyone. One other thought I had about diversity and and you know is mentorship. So it's very important to to be a good mentor, but also to seek mentorship. Uh, because long term, it also builds confidence. You're not born 100% confident. I think you, you learn to be confident, and having that mentor and that that su- that support system uh, is also very important in order for 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 every anyone to go step into that next next thing. You know, doing a master's and then deciding, oh no, I want to you know I want to do an MBA, or I don't want to be a doctor. I want to work at Pfizer, for example. That's that's also yeah. very important.
1: I think that's absolutely true. I I think it's just even having somebody to talk with, you know, to bounce ideas off. Um, So when I was at Northwestern, Paula Stern often served as my mentor and and did for years after I left Northwestern. And whenever I had a scientific question, I would like, she was my encyclopedia, right? We all have those people that I didn't want to go look it up in PubMed. I would just call Paula and be like, so I read this paper and I don't understand why and she always had an answer for me. Or She still does. I mean, what am I talking about? She still does. I can talk to her about anything. And so that was really helpful to me because so much of what you do in science is like in the minute. Like I want to know that, right, we're we're sort of instant gratification kind of people, right? It's really hard for us when we have to wait overnight for Excel growth. Blame
0: um, dopamine. Blame <laughs> <Slain laughs> dopamine there. So I'm like, I I
1: really want to know right now, right? I don't want to look it up. I don't want to wait an hour. I don't want to, you know, so I, it's so nice to be able to call somebody and like talk science, right? I, I think we live in a relatively small world. I, I don't have a lot of outside friends that are scientists, right? People ask me what I do. My kids, right? The other parents, nobody else is a scientist. Um, so I think that really mentoring, having somebody to talk to, Having somebody that you can ask their advice—that's—it's um, a phenomenal thing to have.
0: So, yeah, it—it it is, it is, and even in having that that trustful relationship where you know that even if your question, you feel like your question is silly or is a stupid question, you can still ask that person, and that person okay. will say, will will give you their honest, direct opinion, and you won't take it uh, in a bad way. You actually will learn from it
1: right no judgment no judgment. there's no such thing as about uh, as a stupid
0: question yeah no I, I i don't think so either um uh thanks Annette for your time i wanted also to ask you um do you have when you have job openings in in your group where do you advertise those and before you answer that question i just wanted to let you know and let the audience know that we also have a career page drgpcr.com/career and the intent behind that page is to kind of serve as a yellow pages for all potential GPCR related jobs, um, because they're hard to find when you're, you're out there.
1: So, um, I work for Midwestern university and Midwestern university has a website where they post all their jobs and Mm -hmm. I will go there. Um, I often, so I'm also on Twitter as are you, right? And I'm GPCR scientist and, I will often retweet um, job openings of other GPCR people um, because I think that, right, we, we live in a pretty small world and anything I can do to promote um, that is a good thing. Uh, so I think that's another place, right, follow Twitter, you, you or me, you are gonna always have careers up. So um, I think that's helpful as well. Um, and I think that sometimes people just have to do the initiative and like literally write the person they're interested in. So Paul said that on the week that he did it, just write me, Um, and I think that's absolutely true, right? If you have a passion in that area, then you should find out who's doing the work and you should write them. Because even if they don't have a job now, if they get a grant, then they're gonna think of you, right? So they may not even need to post the job per se. Um, They can call you, you can talk about it, right? I mean, you really have to go to people um, completely blind and say, I'm interested. Whatever you have,
0: I'm interested. I, th- I think that's, that's great advice, and that reminds me of, of how I met Paul. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was about five years ago, and I wanted to do a postdoc, a second postdoc in his lab. And he had said, well, you know, I'm not sure if I'm going to get funding. Uh, you know, you can come out. Um, and actually, I was introduced to Paul through, um, through someone else, and the name escapes me, but I, it will come back in a second. And I decided to just, you know, go to his lab and ask, you know, go there, ask him ahead of time, can I come in? I really want to, you know, meet you, meet your team. And I gave a talk and uh, he ended up not getting the grant that year. I never went to Paul's lab, but then we kept in touch. Right. And, and that relationship started out of me taking the initiative of sending the email And then going there and meeting him, meeting his team. And, um, you know, he kindly accepted to be my first, uh, my first, uh, you know, test subject on the podcast. And I really, really, very much enjoyed talking to him. And that's how kind of the whole podcast idea, uh, you know, started out from that email that I sent over five years ago saying, hey, I love your work. Can I come and visit your lab? That's exactly
1: right. I mean, and you don't even know where the relationship will go in the end, right? You have no idea of knowing in 10 years what your research is going to be and if you're going to be crossing paths again and again and again, right? And it's because you form that relationship that you're able to call them and be like, oh, hey, I got this problem, right? I, I found this yeah. weird finding. Um, yeah. yeah, Yes, yeah. and
0: you never know. So um, to, to the junior scientists out there, just you know, send that email, read the paper, pick up the phone, um, it's a small GPCR world and uh, everyone is, is always welcoming, you know, send a nice note saying, Hey, I read your paper. I really liked it. Do you have five minutes? Right. And who doesn't have five minutes to talk about GPCRs? It's true. And if they don't have five minutes, probably not. yes, yes. Right. That's, that, that's the other side of the coin. I mean, you you can't get a positive answer from anyone and that's not only, you know, a GPCR crowd thing it's everywhere some and that's okay too because then it stirs you to a different direction that you wouldn't have taken if you wouldn't had sent that first email from whom you didn't got an you didn't get an answer so just right. just don't be afraid to 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 go out there no definitely not all right thank you annette for your time uh, i really enjoyed that conversation um take care and uh, be safe thank you it was a pleasure thank you thank you for listening to this dr gpcr podcast episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. I'd like to thank our guests, Attila Forrest, Jin Chong, and Shivani Sajdev. Music by Rosa Bershish. I'm your host, Dr. Yamina Bershish. We're always excited to hear from you. Visit us at drgpcr.com or send us a note at hello at drgpcr.com. I also wanted to wish you happy holidays and a very happy new year. I'd like to thank this year's guests and thank you for being such a wonderful audience. Thank you again for the privilege of your time, and until next time, stay safe.